Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, author of The American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1970s and the 1990s. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. Today we're going to talk about The Benefits of Doubts, Steve Englehart's radical take on tradition in the Justice League of America. During the 1970s, DC Comics was generally considered to be a more conservative company than rival Marvel. DC had older characters that always seemed corporate in contrast with rival Marvel's seemingly rebellious spirit. At DC, a good plot almost always trumped radical storytelling, with a more craftsman-like approach taken by DC's editors as opposed to the more radical approach favored by Marvel's ever-rotating set of editors-in-chief. Steve Englehart was one of the most radical writers at Marvel by 1976, and also one of the most popular. Englehart is often branded as one of the three radicals at Marvel during the 1970s, with a group that includes uh, writers Steve Gerber and Don McGregor, and was perhaps the most rule-shattering writer of his time, due to his contemporary tapes on Marvel's most iconic heroes. Under Englehart's guidance, Captain America witnessed the suicide of President Richard Nixon in the Oval Office. The X-Men's Beast was revived as a pot-smoking slacker scientist who embraces free love. Doctor Strange and his love and lover, Clea, become involved in adventures that were clearly influenced by Englehart's use of LSD. And the Avengers became involved in, with, among many other things, a Vietnamese refugee who becomes a Madonna and an artificial man who becomes human enough to fall in love and get married. Englehart's oddball comics struck the public consciousness and became bestsellers during the time he wrote them. Perhaps most surprising of all, this happened amazingly quickly. With Marvel's line expanding at a frenetic pace, Englehart found himself quickly handling some of their top characters. In fact, he'd only been a professional comic book writer for a scant four years by the time he took on a surprising set of new assignments. After making a major splash at Marvel, one of comics' most radical writers came to work at DC in late 1976. Few might expect that Englehart would combine his radical new approach with a deep reverence for DC's traditions, but that's what he delivered. On all his comics for DC, Englehart delivered characters who had a strong sense of their history, combined with a rethinking of what that history meant. It was a Marvel-style approach to the past, but the one that was specifically tailored for DC's long traditions. Truth be told, Englehart didn't choose to leave Marvel for DC. He was unceremoniously dumped from his four-year run on Avengers in 1976. Of April of that year, then-writer Jerry Conway was briefly elevated to the position of editor-in-chief at Marvel. Conway decided it was his prerogative to take the writing chores of any series he liked. And since he was interested in writing the Avengers, Conway fired Stainless Steve from the series, which Englehart had scripted for nearly four years and some 50 issues. It should be noted that Conway denied in a 1980 interview in the Comic Times that he fired his counterpart. But Englehart has stuck with his story since since, uh, he first said that. Making a virtue of a necessity, Englehart soon announced he would write for DC in 1977. He also announced his stay at DC would be brief. He would leave the comics industry by 1978 in order to travel and write a prose novel. Englehart would eventually find his way back into comics in the 1980s, producing several fine series. But for many readers, Englehart's 77 work at DC was the apex of his career. In that year, he wrote three series, an interesting revival of Jack Kirby's Mr. Miracle, 
a run on Batman in Detective Comics that would come to be known as the Definitive Batman, and a much-loved 10-issue run on Justice League of America. On Detective and Justice League, Engelhart was assigned the great Julius Schwartz as his editor. One of Schwartz's great skills was in combining the right creators with the right project and then tailoring his editing skills to fit those creators. As Engelhart told me in an email in 2003, I mentioned to DC publisher Jeanette Kahn that Julie had a rep for controlling his books, whereas I wanted to control my books. I assume she spoke to Julie about that, because on both titles he left me pretty much alone. He did make some changes around the edges, but was not involved in plotting or execution. And he was always, then and later, fine with that. I believe Julie just wanted the best books he could get. I also believe, but do not know for sure, that in the earlier days of comics, he generally dealt with with writers who were less able than he was of crafting a good book. That is to say, he took the lead to make sure he got what he wanted. The problem with that theory is I think John Broom, for one, was a very good writer. So maybe Julie just took the lead because that was his way. And maybe by the time I showed up, he was tired of taking the lead. Or maybe he was spoken to strongly by Jeanette and told truthfully that DC had nothing going for at that point except for this wunderkind who'd come over from Marvel. However it happened, the bottom line is that he let me do my thing and never showed any resentment about it. In fact, he was a strong proponent of my stories. He treated me as an equal. There may have been various reasons for it, but I do think the main one was I was giving him good stories, and that was all he really wanted for his books. Though Engelhart downplayed Schwartz's involvement in the comics, it should be emphasized that it was very unusual for for that editor to take such a hands-off approach to writers. Schwartz is well-known to be one of the most deeply involved editors in comics, often sitting with writers to help them plot and deliver their stories. It's thus a great sign of respect for the young writer that Schwartz mainly left him alone. Engelhart's run on Justice League lasted a mere 10 issues, encompassing a 17-page prologue in issue 139, and 33-page stories that appeared in issues 140 through 146, 149, and 150. Issues 147 and 148 were the then-annual Justice League of America, Justice Society of American team-up, which Engelhart opted not to write. All ten issues are illustrated by Dick Dick Dillon, the very definition of a solid but unspectacular comic artist, and then by veteran Frank McLaughlin. Dillon does a fine fine job on the book. Engelhart noted in an email that Dillon was a longtime DC stalwart I was very proud to work with. I love being part of comics tradition, but the real star is Inglehart. Inglehart's 10 issues of Justice League of America and 8 issues of Detective Comics under Schwartz showcase the writer's remarkable ability to modernize conservative characters while also staying true to their long histories. The first thing that jumps out in reading the 10 issues of Justice League is Inglehart's love and respect for the work of those who came before him. The book always read as if Engelhardt had been reading and thinking about the Justice League for years, bringing in changes and insights that were based on the history of those characters. As he noted in his email, I tend to believe in the reality of my characters. Not psychotically, I know they're fictional, but I say to myself, now, if these guys really existed, who would they really be? Therefore, I try to accept everything they've ever done as real history for them, unless it absolutely can't be. And that leads to wanting to make use of that history to delineate their characters. I was trying to make the 2D JLA characters 3D, so I had to put them in their context. 
So the actual idea and execution was all mine. But the flip side to Julie's treating me with respect was my treating him with respect. And certainly a part of what I did was to pay homage to the DC that he'd been a major force in creating. I wanted to say the early DC superhero stuff mattered. Engelhart's love of the characters was made immediately clear in Justice League 139. It's hard to know how much of this approach came from Engelhart and how much from Swartz, but each issue was peppered with footnotes referring to back issues and other comic series. In a 17-page story in issue 139, for example, there were six footnotes, one of the highest numbers of any DC books of the era. DC generally ignored continuity, with each issue of each comic running as its own world onto itself. This level of footnoting made the comic feel like it was a part of a larger world, a shared history that all the characters had lived through. Marvel grabbed their readers in part because they were made to feel part of a shared universe. Englehart's radical take on the JLA placed them in a larger context in which the threats seemed more real. In fact, from the jump, it was clear that Englehart's take on DC's foremost team of superheroes would be both deeply embedded in history and present a radical take on DC history. His first extended storyline built on several classic DC stories, providing context for the Guardians of the Universe, those weird blue aliens who created the Green Lantern Corps by mixing in both uh, by mixing in both the classic DC Golden Age character and his more modern counterpart. The nemeses of Engelhart's run were the Manhunters, a precursor for the of the Green Lantern Corps. Engelhart ingeniously connected with both a most much loved Jack Kirby Josan. Jack Kirby Joe Simon creation from the 1940s and a much less loved Kirby creation of the 1970s. Engelhart took pains to create connections, even for readers who weren't familiar with that history, and he gave the book such a thoughtful feeling of continuity that when a rogue Manhunter shows up, he gets connected to DC mythology in several different ways. Engelhart's love of history also showed itself in an area that DC traditionally neglected, in its use of characterization. From Justice League 139, Englehart's characters call each other by their first names and make reference to previous adventures. In fact, his love for history was even more evident in his portrayal of Hawk Girl, who's one of the most featured guest stars in Justice League Adventures. Her guest starring role certainly made sense within the context of the stories since she was married to long-term member Hawkman, and he would often bring, on, bring her along on his ventures to battle alongside him. Also, Hawkgirl's presence allowed writers to have an extra female character to appear with the male-dominated league. Yet, for the most arbitrary of reasons, Hawkgirl was denied formal membership in the league. The JLA had a long-running rule preventing members who duplicated powers from being part of the team. There was probably no real reason for the rule in the fictional world of the Justice League, as that was probably a writer's conceit that characters with duplicate characters with duplicate powers would be more difficult to write than having everyone be unique. Indeed, the rule made no sense in its fictional context. Why wouldn't the Justice League want to have both Superman and Supergirl, or both Hawkman and Hawkgirl? Engelhardt faced that rule head-on and through wonderful storytelling, insightful characterization, and respect for his characters' histories, showed how ridiculous that rule was. His writing presented a radical take that history was important. That approach flowed through all Engelhardt's work on the series. Justice League of America 145 featured the team's battle with a supernatural sorcerer named Count Crystal, who somehow managed to kill Superman. He got better. In the midst of an all-out battle, Crystal managed to kidnap Hawkgirl and make half-hearted attempts to win her love. 
Ew. Though it ran counter to the way she lived her life as a citizen of Thanagar, Hawkgirl went along with the villain, pretending to fall for his ploy until she overpowered Count Crystal and turned the battle in the League's favor. This ploy caused the heroine real emotional pain, as the narrator says in the narrator says in the caption, to some the solution to Hot Girl's dilemma would seem self-evident, but not to her. The easy pleasures of, mo- of our modern world are not the norm on her native Thanagar. Their marriage is a sacrament. Since voicing vows to Cater Hall, she has never looked at another man. Even as a ruse, she is giving away a small slice of her soul to, the, to defeat the evil sorcerer. In light of her sacrifice, how could the JLA deny her membership? In the next issue, he, she fought valiantly to balance, battle the plans of the evil construct, once again showing she was at least as brave as her husband. By the end of issue 146, the choice for the League was obvious, and Shayera was inducted to join her husband, Katar. A second character joined the JLA in issue 146, though, to be more accurate, the character rejoined the Justice League. Eternal's second-rate hero, the Red Tornado, had been killed and revived twice by previous writers, who apparently felt he was both too dull and too complicated to deal with. Engelhart seemed to see in the robotic tornado a chance to explore the idea of an internal outsider with a profound inferiority complex who still was allowed to sit at the big kid's table. In doing so, Engelhart extrapolated from the character's history to present a character with some logical complexity. By issue 150, the tornado was as much a hero as his teammates, defeating the villain and even laughing at his foolishness earlier in the story. The tornado grew a lot between issues 146 and 150, but the progression was so logically done that it feels completely natural. Then there's the case of the JLA member who was mostly forgotten, the Phantom Stranger. The Stranger was a supernatural character who didn't fit in with most of the JLA's pseudoscience fiction adventures. The Stranger was nevertheless inducted as a full member after he had helped the Justice League defeat the nefarious plans of Felix Faust in issue 103. The Phantom Stranger had only appeared with the League one more time in 36 subsequent issues, before Engelhart used him four times within 10 issues. Having the Phantom Stranger defeat the main villain in issue 139 and save the whole team in issue 145. In the eight years between 1977 and the cancellation of the comic, the Phantom Stranger only appeared five, five more times with the Justice League of America. Engelhardt's knowledge of the character made him seem like a logical part of the Justice League, something that escaped all previous and subsequent writers of the series. Another revival was of Snapper Carr, the League's mascot for about the first ten years of its existence. But to tell you how old Snapper was as a character, to say he was based on a character from the old series, 77 Sunset Strip. Yeah, I never saw it either. Engelhart cast Carr as half of the evil Starzar in issues 149 and 150. Carr had been nursing old resentments at the League for years because of what he felt was a lack of respect for him as he outgrew his youthful persona. As Carr thinks in issue 150, Maybe I'm just a mascot, not a grown man, like I said. I never seem to know what to do when I'm on my own. I haven't seen these guys in months. How much of my anger is justified? How much is sour grapes? This isn't the same boy who was friends with the League when it first started. Carr was a man who had grown and changed, but not necessarily in the best ways. Again, Engelhardt took a character who had been more or less forgotten and breathed new light in him. 
But Engelhardt's finest and most respectful exploration of DC history lay in his radical take on Justice League 144, which revealed the true secret origin of the Justice League. Engelhardt had done the math around the JLA's first appearance and clued that timing didn't quite add up. The team's accepted origin had included Green Lantern, but that hero hadn't appeared first until several months after the team's origin. Engelhardt took that time discrepancy and created a thoughtful and compelling tale that melded DC history, post-war paranoia, and a Martian invasion into a grand and exciting adventure yarn. Furthering his radical love of tradition, in JLA 144, Engelhardt also revived another leaguer, albeit in flashback. Long before he became the Oreo-loving hero in the 1980s Justice Justice League series and a co-equal in Grant Morrison's JLA run, writers just didn't know what to do with the Martian Manhunter. By 1977, he had been written out of the Justice League for several years, so it was a treat to read an adventure that centered on the Manhunter, even if he did only appear in flashback. It turns out that Martian Manhunter was a reason the Justice League was formed. John Johns was accidentally transported from to the Earth from Mars in 1955 and was living a happy life as a police detective until the evil Martian commander Blanks and several of his lieutenants were accidentally transported to Earth by John four years after his revival. Their revival triggered widespread panic. This was at the height of the Cold War era and paranoia was rampant and also brought together nearly every other action hero in the DC Universe at the time. Not only did the issue feature Superman, Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman, Aquaman and the Flash, but the, but it also featured the challenges of the unknown, Plastic Man, the Blackhawks, Kung Gorilla, even Rex the Wonder Dog. All were gathered by Roy Raymond, TV detective, to fight the Martian invasion. Along the way, Adam Strange, Jimmy Olsen, and Rip Hunter Time Master made cameo appearances as the combined heroes defeat the menace of the bad Martian. Justice League of America 144 is a moving story that celebrates DC's long history while giving it a modern sheen. Engelhart seems to find the heart of John Johns in his self-sacrifice and intelligence and manages to give each of his guest stars, which include such long-forgotten heroes as Roy Raymond, TV detective, and Rex the Wonder Dog, their individual highlighted moments in the story. Showcasing Engelhardt's considerable skills gained in the previous five years, JLA 145 never feels like an issue in which too much is going on. It's a tribute to Engelhardt's abilities that this comic feels seems to flow amiably, amiably, rather than seeming busy and overcrowded. The secret history of the Justice League fully embraces comic tradition nearly all its tropes. It's a grand team-up of the type that that fans love. It splits superheroes into sub-teams who all fight one part of a large battle. It also takes pains to present characterization of characters in ways that stay true to who they are. And that way, the story can be read as a radically conservative work because it takes existing tropes, gives them new energy, while staying true to their foundational integrity. Since its publication, this origin has taken its place as a definitive origin of the Justice League of America. As you can hear from my descriptions before, characterization was an important part of Engelhardt's stories. In the main, though, his characterization was most interesting when used in the context of the stories themselves. For example, his portrayal of John Johns in issue 144 and of Hawkman and Hawkgirl in the issue she appears in are wonderful ways of using character to illuminate story. His characterization does seem more awkward in other places. For example, 
Having the atom express feelings of uselessness in issue 142 rings untrue. He's a veteran crime fighter. He'd been a member of the JLA for many years, so it seems strange that he suddenly doubts his abilities and usefulness. Similarly, Engelhart portrays The Flash as a tongue-tied country boy from the Midwest when talking to a Wonder Woman, which seems to go against so many of the, the adventures he had previously with the League. On the other hand, other characterizations ring true. For example, Wonder Woman had been forced to spend two years going through a series of trials to regain her status in the League after a period in which she lost her superpowers. It made sense for the character to be resentful about being treated so poorly, especially since she was quite literally an Amazon princess. Another character had the well was Superman. He was portrayed as a man who felt the weight of the world on his shoulders and who handled it gallantly, which certainly seems logical. And the relationship between Green Lantern, the Eternal Rebel, and Hawkman, the interstellar policeman, was seldom handled better than by Engelhart. Engelhart definitely fulfilled his assignment of adding life and character to DC's sedate pantheon of heroes. Ironically, Engelhart was succeeded on Justice League by the man who replaced him on Avengers, Jerry Conway. Conway went on to write the JLA's adventures for around 100 issues, but they never came close to matching the quality of Engelhart's short run. Perhaps the most accurate summary of his 10 issues comes from Engelhart. He notes on his website that the JLA was the reason he was brought to D.C. As he puts it, it was the JLA that I was recruited to D.C. for. They wanted to give the characters personalities, like the Avengers, after decades of being simply costumes. I knew that would require a lot of work on each individual, and that would be tough in a traditional format, so I asked to make the book double-sized and keep it monthly. Nothing like that had ever been done before, but they went for it. The result was a nice run, where there was room for characterization and superheroes. He adds in his email to me, The run did reestablish a JLA, and I was very pleased that the first story in the Justice League animated series was directly from, taken from my first story back then, the Green Lantern Manhunter thing, which Julie, of course, lived long enough to say. I'd say he and I got what we wanted out of our time together. Steve Englehart's 10 issues of Justice League are among the most interesting and fun comics of the 1970s, and the origin story at issue 144 is a textbook example of how to judge two dozen, juggle two dozen characters in a story without the story suffering. His run on Detective Comics is justifiably called a classic, but Englehart's work on Justice League of America is also wonderful. The quality in both series is a tribute to Englehart and his artists. It's also a tribute to editor Julius Schwartz, who was wise enough to allow a superior comics writer the space to write what he wanted.